Welcome to Frankly Speaking. This is a new podcast on responsible business by Frank Bold, the European public interest law firm. I'm Richard Howitt, and after several years of debating responsible business issues inside the European Parliament, I host our discussion of the latest political, legal and business developments in the field of corporate sustainability, business and human rights. We speak frankly and personally about what moves policymakers, business and activists to make responsible business the norm. Today, nature and how business interacts with nature. We all know there's a biodiversity crisis with a 69% loss of wildlife populations since 1970 and 41,000 species on the red list facing extinction. What can business do about this? In September, the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, the TNFD, came up with at least some of the answers, with its recommendations providing the tools and methodologies needed by companies and investors to develop a sustainable relationship with nature. I'm joined on Frankly Speaking to discuss all of this by the TNFD's Executive Director, Tony Goldner, also a former senior advisor at the World Bank. He's advised both companies and countries on sustainability. And I'm joined too by Emily McKenzie, the TNFD's technical director, who previously worked for a decade in the global science team at the Worldwide Fund for Nature. Tony recently said, I quote, divestment from nature is not a realistic option. And Emily recently used the TNFD's B logo as an analogy saying, having made family honey for years, will they pollinate or will they sting? Well, that's a good analogy for this podcast. Welcome to both of you. Now, Tony, let's assume our audience knows and cares about biodiversity. But of course, the real innovation of the TNFD is to address the dependency that business has on nature. So let me ask you, begin by asking you, what is that risk which nature presents to business? Well, essentially, the, the cash flows of business depend on the flows of, of benefits that we get from nature into our business models and into our society. Um, so you can think about these two flows as being related. Cash flows for business, which, of course, is what investors measure, and the flow of what's called ecosystem services from nature into business, things like the flow of water or the pollination services um, or the flood mitigation benefits of mangroves. Uh, in the science, these are called ecosystem services, and every business relies on them, either directly or, or indirectly through its supply chain relationships. Um, and unfortunately, investors expect uh, cash flows to have a nice steady incremental growth year on year, but the planetary science is now telling us that the, the, the decay of our natural systems is now leading us to a risk where our ecosystem services from nature into business are, are in decline. And of course, you can't have one thing going in one direction and, and something that, on which it's dependent going in the opposite direction. So we have a fundamental challenge of rebalancing and re reframing uh, the business and societal relationship with nature on which we depend. And for many in business who haven't been involved in the detail of this before, is how substantial is that risk? You know, people could, can agree with what you say in principle, but they've got multiple priorities. They've got all the business pressures day in, day out. Uh, uh, 
on climate, I think the argument's been won. It's big enough that no one can avoid it and any business that tries to is going to suffer otherwise. Is that also true, you would argue, with nature? Well, I think the evidence is becoming increasingly clear and at multiple levels. So at the level of countries, a number of countries have now done an assessment of the extent to which the economy is highly or moderately dependent on nature. And most countries that have done this, ranging from the Netherlands to to Malaysia, um, other countries like Australia and Peru, it typically comes in at 40 to 50%. But of course, we're we're 100% dependent. 40 to 50% of what? Is highly, moderately or highly dependent on on nature in terms Mm. of the the impact on the economy as a whole. But of course, we're 100% dependent on nature um, more fundamentally. So... It's all, it's all about uh, scales of severity and magnitude, and that's at a, com- at a country level. Um, but increasingly, we're seeing nature risks manifest themselves um, at the company level and at the investor level. We're seeing investors starting to ask more questions around how the companies they invest in are managing nature risks because they are seeing their exposure to things like bushfires or flooding, uh, crop failure, uh, the impact of invasive species, Uh, in agriculture, for example. And so investors are starting to ask more questions to the companies they're investing in. How are you managing these risks? Because it's it's our money that's that's at risk. Um, We're we're also seeing this across across sectors and across geographies. Typically, when we think of nature, everyone thinks of agriculture, forestry and fishing. Um, But it doesn't take long to find nature dependencies, critical nature dependencies in sectors like semiconductors, Um, where the manufacturing of semiconductor chips has a critical dependence on water. The provision of fresh water supply is absolutely essential to the manufacturing of chips. So one of the challenges I think we have is that as people think about this topic and, and, and as sustainability executives across sectors think about whether nature is relevant to their business, the central question to ask, and it sort of echoes your opening comment, Richard, is how is my business or how is my investment portfolio dependent on nature? And that one question opens up a lot of other questions and, and starts a process of, we think, very productive inquiry. And it typically won't take very long to start understanding uh, a range of dependencies. Water is an obvious one, but most businesses will have multiple dependencies that they need to be now starting to think about and manage. Emily, um, there are, of course, a lot of our listeners who have begun to think about this and, and won't be starting from from square one. But as always in in business, there's a lot of confusion between the different reporting frameworks. And uh, I'm sure you'll be able to add to this, but I I would quote Target 15 of the Global Biodiversity Framework agreed last year in Montreal, the E4 standard on biodiversity and ecosystems in the European Sustainability Reporting Standards, the Natural Capital Protocol, which you yourself were, were involved in in helping to, to develop the GRI standard 304 on biodiversity, the science-based targets, initiative guidance on setting nature targets. And um, at the moment, the International Sustainability Standards Board uh, are consulting and they may come forward with standards uh, for biodiversity reporting by business. Now, put that all together, and I said that quite quickly, mm-hmm. uh, so people will have to wind back and listen to it again if you, if you miss something. But it is potentially confusing to business. So where does the TNFD fit into all that? Is it just another one or uh, what's the interrelationship with some of those others? Thanks, Richard. 
one of the things we did that was really constructively creative um, and I think very powerful was working with all of the other initiatives in this space, whether they be standards and standards that are in development, like those that the GRI and the International Sustainability Standards Board are developing, or frameworks like the Natural Capital Pro Protocol, or methods for looking at target setting, um, like the Science-Based Targets Network are developing, and bring all of that together into one overarching framework and a set of recommendations and guidance that can be used. So we have really been working standing on the shoulders of, of giants that have been working for decades in this space. And that's one of the reasons we've been lucky and enabled to be able to move so quickly and develop this over just two years. We're bringing all of that together into one harmonized um, framework for risk management and for disclosure. And broadly, we then see how, how it fits. We've created a, a voluntary um, market-led set of recommendations building from and inspired by the, the climate equivalent, the TCFD's recommendations, um, which then organizations are already, I mean, we've had more than 200 pilot tests, 240 organizations pilot testing them, already getting going because they see this as a material issue for them. They're seeing those material risks, whether they be physical risks that due to that ecosystem service degradation Tony spoke about or transition risks because regulation's moving fast. They're already underway. So then it's up to regulators in different jurisdictions um, when and how they fold nature into their regulations. But we already see, as you mentioned, in Europe, um, a very fast pace. We already have the European sustainability reporting standards now in place against the, the corporate and um, the CSRD. So we've worked very closely at all those levels to create that consistency. And I think one of the things uh, Tony and I and the, the task force were most pleased about when we launched was not just the product <laughs> in September, but also the recognition of that consistency and that integration um, from the likes of ISSB, from um, the likes of GRI and indeed CDP, which runs an important environmental disclosure um, system and the commitment to continue to work together. We've worked very productively with them as knowledge partners, as well as other organizations like the Capitals Coalition and SBTN. Keep working in that way because really to move at, at pace and enable businesses to, to, to move forward, we know <laughs> they need it all to, to come together. Of course, there'll be different people moving at different parts of the system, but the language, the common language system and the signposting to all the relevant methods at the relevant time needs to be crystal clear. And I'll press you a bit more on that, if I may. Mm -hmm. I'd, uh, you're right to, about CDP, of course, announced they're going to align to the TNFD. They're going to to ensure that all of your recommendations are in this, their platform. Um, but um, from a business point of view, when uh, you hear they're consistent and you, you produced a statement that you were consistent with the European standards, and welcome the, the contact with AFRAG that recommends them. What some in business will read is, well, okay, they're not contradictory to each other, but they're not the same and we have to do both. Is there is there a sense that if companies do the TNFD, they're doing the others, or they're doing the European standards, they're doing the TNFDs, and are there moves towards that? Thanks. Yeah, well, just to focus on the example you've mentioned, we've worked very closely with the FRAG, the European Financial Regulation uh, Advisory Group, for the last two years, and we're continuing to do so to create that um, granularity. And we're hoping to 
put something out actually later this year, which with with FRAG that will work through um, these details so that you can see at a high level how they're conceptually consistent. And then at the level of granularity, exactly that question. So if I have uh, applied the CSRD following the European standards, are there what else would need to be fully following the TNFD's recommendations or vice versa? If I follow the TNFD recommendations, have I followed the SRS? Because we know that that is a uh, you know, it's huge demand. <laughs> Tony and I are hearing at many, many events for exactly that. Because, because there's a regulate. I mean, I don't think this had happened for TCFD, but a jurisdiction where the regulations are in place at the same time as the framework comes up. And one of the things that's been really encouraging for us, and um, we've discussed with FREG, is that from the pilot testers, I mean, there are people who have already been doing this in practice, actually. It's not fresh and new. We've got um, many organisations in Europe who have been doing this, who fed back that the, the guidance we've developed is extremely helpful in applying the CSRD because you've got that conceptual consistency, but we have more detailed practical guidance. And indeed, the ESRS specifically referenced this thing we developed called the LEAP approach, um, which is practical guidance for how do you start to assess and and manage and disclose these issues. So yeah, I want to come back to that a bit later, if, if I may. Yeah. Can, can I just pick up your point about the TCFD with Tony? Um, again, some listeners will know this inside out, but the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure did for climate what you're doing for nature back in 2017. I had the privilege of working quite closely with them and their, their, their secretariat. Uh, it was absolutely brilliant. Already today, nearly 4,000 companies report against it. Governments are adopting it, as you say. Um, and uh, probably the most important thing, as far as I'm concerned, echoing what you said earlier, Tony, is the investors are actually using it and they, they are seeing it as important. Um, uh, uh, if you forgive a, uh, a phrase from from uh, uh, a different field, magicians, the law of magicians is that never repeat the same trick twice. And what you're trying to do is take TCFD and do it all over again for nature. Uh, and are you going to get away with it? Are you the magician that's going to get away with it? Why are you are you hopeful? And why are you why are you hopeful that you will be able to have what for me is the same extraordinary impact that the TCFD had. Well, just to follow your analogy, Richard, I think um, audiences sometimes delight in seeing the same trick multiple times, right? So uh, what we've heard from the market is that they want consistency above all else. Um, we're acutely aware of the compliance cost of different frameworks and different standards. Um, TCFD has been effective in shifting the mindset about how companies think about and assess their climate risk and then go on to report it. Um, and we heard loud and clear when we started the TNFD, uh, small changes in language create large amounts of uncertainty. So if you can keep the structure and the language and the approach the same and build on what's already there, um, that would be incredibly well received by the market. So. Um, not not only in name, but but in the very way in which we've gone about building our recommendations, we have, uh, uh, you know, shamelessly and deliberately uh, adopted as much of TCFD as we can because that's what the market uh, has told us would be most beneficial. Now, of course, we had to make sure that the TCFD disclosures worked and were relevant in the nature context. Um, and so we sort of went through a three-step process. What from TCFD can we simply carry over almost word for word into the nature context? 
what of the 11 TCFD disclosures might need some adaptation? Clearly, there were references to emissions and scope one, two, and three, and, and the, the Paris Agreement targets in relation to scenarios. So there were a few that required some adaptation. And then the third question was, is there anything that we think is really significant that should be added to the 11 TCFD disclosures? And where we got to at the end of that process was all 11 TCFD disclosures are relevant in the nature context. So we've carried them over, we've adapted a few, and we've added three additional disclosures. Just for audience that aren't following that closely, what are the three new additional ones? Yeah, so um, the first one is in relation to companies disclosing where they are interfacing with uh, particularly sensitive eco ecological areas. So um, fragile ecosystems, water-stressed areas, um, key biodiversity areas. Of course, on the climate side, we don't live in the we don't live in the upper atmosphere where the where the emissions are accumulating. We 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 live on terrestrial and coastal biomes and ecosystems, and so there is a really a fundamental issue of location really matters when it comes to nature. A ton of CO two in Australia is broadly the same as one released in Finland. That's not the case on the nature side. What happens in a particular location has a context in that location that needs to be considered. So location, location, location is the sort of central mantra of the TNFD. And we thought it's important, both from, a, from an environmental and a public policy perspective, for companies to acknowledge where they're interfacing with sensitive ecosystems. But by the same token, if a company has a high level of dependence on ecosystem services in a very fragile area, that may well in fact mean that it has an elevated level of risk associated with that dependence. So it works both ways. Um, so that's the first one. The second one is in relation to um, uh, supply chains and value chains. And the third one is in relation to engagement with indigenous peoples and local communities and other affected stakeholders. And again, because because nature impacts are terrestrial, they're happening in coastal ecosystems where, where we live and where we work and where there are communities, there is this um, inevitable interface between the impacts that a company has on nature and the relationship that those impacts have to local communities. And so we spent over 12 months engaging uh, Indigenous leaders from around the world, civil society groups to develop up not just a disclosure requirement around the quality of a company's engagement with its stakeholders, but also some, I think, some very important additional guidance on how companies can improve the way they're engaging with those stakeholders in respect to nature-related issues. So those are the three additional ones. But the good news for companies already doing TCFD is that if you're doing TCFD already, you're actually extremely well positioned to start on your TNFD reporting path because all 11 TCFD disclosures have been carried over. So, for example, if a company is already able to describe um, how its board or its management team are overseeing and managing climate risk, if they're also doing the same thing for nature-related risks or they're planning to in the near future, which we hope that they are, then they should actually be very well placed to describe those governance processes and start making TNFD disclosures. And, of course, the ultimate objective isn't, isn't to have a whole set of climate disclosures in one place and a whole set of nature disclosures in another, it's actually to move towards integrated sustainability disclosures. Do you mind if I go back to Emily? Because you were starting to talk about 
this framework, the LEAP framework, uh, uh, to locate, evaluate, assess, and prepare that you've brought up, which is not the recommendations, but is very much a part of uh, how you're helping companies to be able to implement the recommendations. Uh, we can't go through it all in the in, a, in one podcast, but I thought I'd ask you about a assess because there will still be people who think it's a bit fuzzy and it, it's difficult to to actually put numbers to it and so on. So tell us a bit about what you recommend about how companies can assess nature, dependency, risks, and opportunities. Thank you. Yes, I think one of the things we went further than TCFD did was to create this bank of guidance in addition to the recommended disclosures, because right from the start, many of our task force members and the other companies and financial institutions said, look, this is a new topic for us, it's unfamiliar, so you're going to need to help us <laughs> and provide guidance, which is why we've developed um, a whole set of guidance and the LEAP approach is almost like the, the overarching structure within which it all fits together. So we've tried to create there's not a linear step by step process. You can, you know, chop and change and find the bits that are going to work for you. But it broadly follows this, 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 this way of understanding your interactions with nature and what's going to be most material and important to you. Because again, people often were overwhelmed. There's this huge raft of issues. Where do I begin? Um, so that's in locate evaluating your impacts and dependencies on nature, which is actually the basis for then understanding your risks and opportunities in the assess phase. Um, which then all of that becomes the basis for, for disclosure, but also for management of those issues in prepare. So um, assess is focused on nature related risks and opportunities to the organization. And it's an example where we've actually really benefited from building from um, the TCFD guidance because it already had this for climate risks but you have to understand your dependencies and impacts to get there. So there's a twist. <laughs> so once you've um, once you've understood your dependencies and impacts, you understand what are the risks and opportunities for our, our organization? How do we need to adjust our, our risk mitigation and risk and opportunity management to, to deal with that? And what are we going to prioritize? And which ones are material to us? So we go through for each of the phases, but for a first assess, each of those questions and all the underlying concepts to really understand um, to understand that I think what's interesting for nature um, which wasn't true for climate is that there is this interaction between impacts on nature and risk so we have amended the criteria so the, the scale of the, the impacts that you're having um, and those impacts on society may well lead to risks to you as an organization whether that be reputational risk whether that be litigation risk whether that actually as tony was beginning to, to to discuss if you're having an impact on a system that's for example um through water usage by those semiconductor companies you are depleting the water supply on which you depend for your the factories that are doing semiconductor preparation your impact is directly creating physical risks for yourself you're undermining the very life support system and the system that's supporting your economic activity so we go through a sort of step-by-step -step process of of going through all of that and we also ha um have created you know quite useful i think getting really fee useful feedback that this is really useful um, methods on risk assessment um, and one of the first things many, many of the pilot testing organizations has been really useful is to do heat mapping. 
So looking even across a very complex portfolio or a company that's got multiple complex value chains, you can do these heat maps. Um, and indeed, that's what inspired by the countries Tony was talking about earlier, many of the central banks and supervisors that have done this for entire countries. It's using a similar sort of process where you look across multiple sectors, multiple parts of your value chain and see where the highest impacts and dependencies are, which then enables you to go drill deeper into your risk um, assessment on those issues. Do you mind if I press you more though on the on yeah. the figures? Uh, because there'll be many companies that will say, buy all of that, but can we really make estimate um uh uh figures for all of this that are going to be useful and reliable, for example, in determining materiality? And as I understand it, the valuation element um you've put TNFD have put in the appendix rather than in the main bit and is that a sign that you're not confident um uh that valuations can be calculated and also as I understand it the you've got a placeholder metric for the state of nature you can perhaps explain that a bit more but uh, as I understand it the the state of nature is against everything we're measuring what we do without understanding ultimately the macro impact on nature uh everything else we might be getting wrong so it's so for that to be something that is just has to be looked at by companies rather than government societies general uh again that's uh, and that there can't be firm metrics on that in the dnfd recommendations that looks a little bit worrisome so reassure me on both of those points and these are big topics <laughs> i want to try and do them briefly and, and clearly um so the first so we have um annexes they're not because they don't matter they're because they're detail and we don't want to overwhelm people with all the detail so there are there are annexes that provide guidance on valuation that's building from the natural capital protocol and on doing these risk assessment methods and we know again going back to the pilot testers that many organizations once they've done qualitative assessments through things like heat mapping they can then drill deeper by tagging their assets, by doing scenario analysis. Um, and we know from pilot tests that many of those are getting through to valuation in terms of costs and benefits to the organization and costs and benefits to society and how those link back. So I have every confidence that organizations can and will get into um, those figures, quantified figures, sometimes in biophysical terms, sometimes in monetary terms. Uh, that can then fit into their risk um, risk assessment and risk management systems. Uh, but of course, it will take work. And we don't want to put people off by saying you need to you know, quantify absolutely everything right at the outset to understand everything. There are ways that you can build through from simpler methods that give you a sense of where the biggest impacts, tendencies, risks and opportunities are, and then drill deeper in certain elements. Um, on the state of nature, so this goes back to actually our our indicator and metrics, our measurement system, which um, was one of the most challenging areas for us to to develop. And we know that to understand your impacts and dependencies, you need to know how your the business is driving impact, what then the impact is on nature, and indeed its services that are so critical. Um, the ecosystem services Tony was discussing. What we found, and we're trying to create a practical framework, right? Something that organizations can already do is that many of those existing standards we mentioned, CDP, GRI, so what businesses are already reporting on are on the drivers of impact. And so when we set out our 
what we called our core disclosure metrics. There are nine that relate to impacts and dependencies, and those focus on those drivers of impact, so and the extent of, of change of a of through land use change of an ecosystem in terms of the extent of that change, uh, how much is the quantity of your water usage. And organizations can crack on. We know from assess what we're seeing in existing disclosure, most of those are already being widely reported. But it is trickier then to understand what the impacts are on nature itself. Um, and that's why we called those those two in, uh, sets of indicators placeholders. And it's recognizing that ultimately understanding your impacts on nature and its diversity are critical. But there's also a hugely important role for governments and society in measuring that with business contributing. Um, we know the indicators. We know that from the UN system of environmental and economic accounting that ecosystem extent and ecosystem condition and species abundance and species extinction risk are the right things to be measuring uh, as indicators. But there's still quite a lot of debate in the scientific community about exactly the right metrics. So that's why we call use the term placeholder. <laughs> it's just to say that we recognize this is important. We also recognize it's tricky. Get cracking with understanding and measuring your how you're driving impact. And over time, we hope there'll be increasing consensus from the scientific community that enables businesses also, and we're encouraging businesses already where they can to measure um, the impact on, on the state of nature. And indeed, where possible, also the delivery of those services that are so critical for all of us. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that, Richard. I think um, one of the things we, we hear a lot is, well, there's no data we can't we can't do this yet. We, we, we don't know where to find the data or that there's you know, data gaps, data quality issues. Um, and of course, there are going to be data challenges. But I think the approach we've taken at the task force is not to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I would encourage all companies, uh, recognizing, of course, that disclosures mean making statements that need to be assured and, and, and need, to be, um, need to be able to, be, uh, uh, to stand up to scrutiny. But I would encourage all companies to, to, to get started and uh, use the data that's there. One of the things that's come through from the pilot testers is that the companies that have got started with an assessment are actually mostly consistently quite surprised at how much data they, they already had in-house or that they could find once they started looking for it. And we signpost to a lot of it. And I just wanted to pick up on your question about the valuation piece. So one of the most interesting conversations I've had in the last few years was with the CSO of a global uh, company that did a full leap assessment and actually then went further to monetize what they thought the risks to their nature-related risks were to their business. And that number is bigger than the climate-related risks to the business. Um, mm -hmm. Now, when you think about the biz their business model, that shouldn't actually be a surprise. Um, but it, it just demonstrates that this is ultimately about shifting decision-making in order to get to better strategy, better risk management, and better governance of companies. And informing those decisions doesn't necessarily have to have the perfect spreadsheet with all of the perfect assumptions all built into it and modeled out. The orders of magnitude can help to frame very important discussions within companies on nature risk. And in the case of the company that I just alluded to, um, it did change the way they think about nature risk relevant to climate risk and all of the time and investment they put into climate risk and now they realise they've actually got something that could be, could be of more significance to their business that needs urgent attention. So for me, that's a great example of getting started using the data that's there, 
orders of magnitude uh, insights can be very important for shifting the decision-making in companies. And that's ultimately what all of this is about. Thank you both. Probably two more questions finally, one to each of you. Emily, you talked about the guidance and uh, to all the listeners, I recommend looking at it as really rich stuff and, and very, very helpful. Uh, but as has been said, the, your TNFT secretariat's keeping going. You're going to be providing more guidance over time to, to, to really oversee and help, uh, promote the implementation process. So tell us a bit about the work that you're going to be next. What can we expect to come out from the TNFD in the next months and years? Thanks. Yes. So there's, there's no rest for the wicked <laughs> or, or the angelic. Um, no, we, we are rapidly um, resetting for the next phase of work and, and really excited, I think, about the next phase. I'll talk about it over overarching and then maybe just drill into the guidance in particular. So in an overarching way, we'll be pivoting to an even greater focus on what those barriers might be for companies to get started and then increase ambition over time. So we're continuing to raise awareness um podcasts uh opportunities like that um but also building capacity so helping to increase that understanding which is really a key first step just understanding the basics understanding the fundamentals and building out that common language system so organizations can start helping each other um and then um addressing remaining data barriers like tony said we've actually found we've crushed i think many of these uh, misconceptions that data is the biggest barrier there's plenty of data but we have identified remaining gaps issues around access issues around consistency so we're going to continue to explore as we have done um how the data and analytics can continue to improve to help people get going and cracking and do this rapidly and well and then on um more broadly on the guidance, yeah, we're identifying areas where either we ran out of time <laughs> um, or we there wasn't that best practice I mentioned earlier, you know, that we've been able to stand on the shoulders of giants. There were there was less out there for us to consolidate. And so we needed to pace ourselves to work with partners to fill those gaps. So some examples, sector guidance. Um, we know that many organizations want to see exactly how the LEAP approach translates for them in those sectors. What, what are the things we need to think about? So it's really tailored to them. So we're going to develop sector guidance um, uh, through next year. And then on areas like transition planning and target setting, particularly target setting for financial institutions, um, there are some you know, remaining gaps on that, uh, which we'll, we'll be working with partners to explore um, to meet to meet needs. So it's a mix you know, of, of building capacity, addressing these barriers, working on data, and then continuing to develop useful guidance without wanting to overwhelm, but would be targeted in areas where people are really curious and feel there's a, a gap that TNFD with others, um, uh, there'll be many others we continue to work with can help. Well, good luck with that. Tony, my final one to you is this, that there, there are many of us in all of our different roles that we have who anticipated this, wanted this to happen, are delighted by it. Once again, we congratulate you. Uh, and we want to champion it. Um, but with climate, it is, as Emily was just talking about, it's simple and biodiversity is complex in relation. So with climate, we've got 1.5 degrees and we've got net zero. And that's both clear in terms of us advancing the case. Uh, and it's also very motivating, I think, for people to, 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 to pursue. With biodiversity, we haven't got the same simple or clear targets in the same way without drilling down into a lot more more detail the, the headlines i suppose 
some people say that's going to be be nature positive there's a lot of discussion today about nature positive obviously in europe we've got the current european law about nature restoration trying to repair all damaged ecosystems by 2050 that's quite a mind-blowing concept um but it's really interesting that the the debate has moved to that do you do you see nature positive as the great clarion call that's going to drive us forward or have you got others how how can we how can we have a headline on all of this that really drives it on for all of those that want you and want the whole biodiversity issue with business to succeed yeah so this i think is going to be a key discussion topic in the next i would say six to twelve months um the notion of nature positive is obviously very appealing it's hard to argue with who, who doesn't want nature positive um but i think we have to be really clear about what the term means and how it gets used because if it becomes the next vector for greenwashing then of course everyone will turn and run in the opposite direction very quickly and so my great concern on, on, on this in, increasing attraction of this notion of nature positive is, um, is the way in which it gets defined and it gets used and applied. And I think the core issue is um, that the global biodiversity framework negotiated in Montreal last December uh, didn't have the phrase nature positive in it, but the essence of the notion of nature positive as it was defined before the Montreal Agreement was signed, is, is the mission statement of the Global Biodiversity Framework. And so the working definition today of nature positive is to halt and reverse nature loss by 2030 and live in harmony with nature by 2050, off a baseline of 2020. That, 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 was the, that was the definition that was around before Montreal. And then the phrase nature positive did not make it into the text, but that, that mission is essentially the guiding mission of the whole Global Biodiversity Framework. So it's in there. We just had the absence of the, of the term nature positive. So there is a bit of a definitional void today. Um, we, along with a number of other organisations, are participating in something that was announced a few weeks ago called the Nature Positive Initiative. And, and the first order of business for that group is to come out with some definitional clarity so that everyone in the market, as well as scientists and everybody else, can have a consensus working definition of, of nature positive. And it's really going to reiterate what I just described coming out of the work from four or five years ago before Montreal. Um, so, I, look, I think there's a lot of potential in that being an animating uh, mission around which we, we motivate government, business, finance and civil society action, but it has to be used and, and set up in the right way. And I think the key dividing line is whether it's a societal goal, as I just out, outlined, or whether it's something that companies can be. Can, can you have a nature-positive company? Can you have a nature-positive toll road or a nature-positive banana? Um, and we hear lots of people wanting to go down that path. Um, of course, it would be attractive as a marketing tool to be able to say my toll road is nature-positive or my bananas are nature-positive, but does it actually really make any sense? Does it, is it credible? Um, so I, I personally think we should limit the use of the term as a societal goal that we contribute to. Um, and I think we need to avoid it becoming just the next great marketing label. Because if we want it to be a long-term animating cause that we all contribute to, we have to protect the integrity of the term. And uh, I think there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of interest in it right now. And of course, um, that, that means it will get pushed and pulled in many different directions. So I think 
let's keep it as an animating cause. Net zero and nature positive is what we should be all pushing towards and contributing to. Um, but we do need that clarity uh, in order to keep everybody focused on, on, on what it means to contribute to those outcomes. Well, um, a, great, a great point to end on how we can animate businesses and all of us uh, across society uh, in order to um, achieve uh, sustainability with nature, uh, keeping the integrity uh, of, of uh, nature positive. Uh, uh to be able to do that we've also heard from emily about we're in an understanding phase hopefully this podcast has contributed to it to really open people's eyes and ears to to some brilliant work that's gone on uh at the tnfd and i think the most bold thing we've we've heard or striking thing for me that i've heard um is uh is that company amongst your 240 pilots that uh measured in measured its dependency and risk uh, on nature and found it to be higher than its dependency and risk on climate. And so for all those that are convinced by climate, that's a really good learning point from today's, frankly speaking. Sadly, we have come to the end of our, our time, but thank you so much to Tony Goldner and to Emily McKenzie from the Task Force for Nature Related Financial Disclosure uh, for joining us. You've been listening to Frankly Speaking, the Frank Bold podcast on responsible business. We'd like you to invite you to send your feedback to us uh, by emailing franklyspeaking at frankbold.org and also to share this conversation. Watch out for our next episode and find out more about Frank Bold's responsible company section on our social media accounts. Thank you again to Tony and to Emily. And to all of you for listening, do join us next time and goodbye. <music>